Section 6 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Chapter 2B, Columbia's Final Flight, Part 2. NASA Times. Like most engineering or technical operations, NASA generally uses Coordinated Universal Time, UTC, formerly called Greenwich Mean Time, as the standard reference for activities. This is, for convenience, often converted to local time in either Florida or Texas. This report uses Eastern Standard Time, EST, unless otherwise noted. In addition to the normal 24-hour clock, NASA tells time via several other methods, all tied to specific events. The most recognizable of these is T-minus time, that counts down to every launch in hours, minutes, and seconds. NASA also uses a less precise L-minus time, that tags events that happen days or weeks prior to launch. Later in this report, there are references to Entry Interface Plus, or EI Plus, time that counts in seconds from when an orbiter begins re-entry. In all cases, if the time is minus, then the event being counted toward has not happened yet. If the time is plus, then the event has already occurred. 2.3. Launch Sequence The STS-107 launch countdown was scheduled to be about 24 hours longer than usual, primarily because of the extra time required to load cryogens for generating electricity and water into the extended-duration orbiter pallet, and for final stowage of plants, insects, and other unique science payloads. Spacehab stowage activities were about 90 minutes behind schedule, but the overall launch countdown was back on schedule when the communication system check was completed at L-24 hours. At 7 hours and 20 minutes prior to the scheduled launch on January 16, 2003, ground crews began filling the external tank with over 1,500,000 pounds of cryogenic propellants. At about 6.15 a.m., the final inspection team began its visual and photographic check of the launch pad and vehicle. Frost had been noted during earlier inspections, but it had dissipated by 7.15 a.m. when the ice team completed its inspection. Heavy rain had fallen on Kennedy Space Center while the shuttle stack was on the pad. The launch day weather was 65 degrees Fahrenheit, with 68% relative humidity, dew point 59 degrees, calm winds, scattered clouds at 4,000 feet, and visibility of seven statute miles. The forecast weather for Kennedy Space Center and the transoceanic abort landing sites in Spain and Morocco was within launch criteria limits. At about 7.30 a.m., the crew was driven from their quarters in the Kennedy Space Center industrial area to Launch Complex 39A. Commander Rick Husband was the first crew member to enter Columbia, 
at the 195-foot level of the launch tower, at 7.53 a.m. Mission specialist Kalpana Chawla was the last to enter at 8.45 a.m. The hatch was closed and locked at 9.17 a.m. The countdown clock executed the planned hold at the T-minus 20-minute mark at 10.10 a.m. The primary ascent computer software was switched over to the launch-ready configuration, communications checks were completed with all crew members, and all non-essential personnel were cleared from the launch area at 10.16 a.m. Fifteen minutes later, the countdown clock came out of the planned hold at the T-minus nine minutes, and at 10.35 a.m. the go was given for auxiliary power unit start. STS-107 began at 10.39 a.m. with ignition of the solid rocket boosters. Wind Shear Before a launch, balloons are released to determine the direction and speed of the winds, up to 50,000 to 60,000 feet. Various Doppler sounders are also used to get a wind profile, which for STS-107 was unremarkable and relatively constant at the lower altitudes. Columbia encountered a wind shear about 57 seconds after launch, during the period of maximum dynamic pressure, Max-Q. As the shuttle passed through 32,000 feet, it experienced a rapid change in the out-of-plane wind speed of minus 37.7 feet per second over a 1,200-foot altitude range. Immediately after the vehicle flew through this altitude range, its side-slip, beta, angle began to increase in the negative direction, reaching a value of minus 1.75 degrees at 60 seconds. A negative beta angle means that the wind vector was on the left side of the vehicle, pushing the nose to the right and increasing the aerodynamic force on the external tank bipod strut attachment. Several studies have indicated that the aerodynamic loads on the external tank forward attach bipod and also the interacting aerodynamic loads between the external tank and the orbiter were larger than normal but within design limits. Predicted and Actual Eye Loads On launch day, the general-purpose computers on the orbiter are updated with information based on the latest observations of weather and the physical properties of the vehicle. These eye loads are initializing data sets that contain elements specific to each mission, such as measured winds, atmospheric data, and shuttle configuration. The eye loads output target angle of attack, angle of side-slip, and dynamic pressure as a function of Mach number to ensure that the structural loads the shuttle experiences during ascent are acceptable. After the accident, investigators analyzed Columbia's ascent loads using a reconstruction of the ascent trajectory. The wing loads measurement used a flexible body structural loads assessment that was validated by data from the modular auxiliary data system recorder, which was recovered from the accident debris. The wing loads assessment included crosswind effects, angle of attack, alpha effects, angle of side slip, beta effects, normal acceleration, g, and dynamic pressure, q 
that could produce stresses and strains on the orbiter's wings during ascent. This assessment showed that all orbiter wing loads were approximately 70% of their design limit or less throughout the ascent, including the previously mentioned wind shear. The wind shear at 57 seconds after launch and the shuttle stack's reaction to it appears to have initiated a very low-frequency oscillation caused by liquid oxygen sloshing inside the external tank that peaked in amplitude 75 seconds after launch and continued through solid rocket booster separation at 127 seconds after launch. A small oscillation is not unusual during ascent, but on STS-107 the amplitude was larger than normal and lasted longer. Less severe wind shears at 95 and 105 seconds after launch contributed to the continuing oscillation. An analysis of the external tank orbiter interface loads using simulated wind shear, crosswind, beta effects, and liquid oxygen slosh effects showed that the loads on the external tank forward attachment were only 70% of the design certification limit. The external tank slosh study confirmed that the flight control system provided adequate stability throughout ascent. The aerodynamic loads on the external tank forward attach bipod were analyzed using a computational fluid dynamics simulation that yielded axial, side force, and radial loads, and indicated that the external air loads were well below the design limit during the period of maximum dynamic pressure, and also when the bipod foam separated. Nozzle Deflections both solid rocket boosters and each of the space shuttle main engines have exhaust nozzles that deflect, gimbal, in response to flight control system commands. Review of the STS-107 ascent data revealed that the solid rocket booster and space shuttle main engine nozzle positions twice exceeded deflections seen on previous flights by a factor of 1.24 to 1.33 and 1.06, respectively. The center and right main engine yaw deflections first exceeded those on previous flights during the period of maximum dynamic pressure, immediately following the wind shear. The deflections were the flight control system's reaction to the wind shear, and the motion of the nozzles was well within the design margins of the flight control system. Approximately 115 seconds after launch, as booster thrust diminished, the solid rocket booster and space shuttle main engine exhaust nozzle pitch and yaw deflections exceeded those seen previously by a factor of 1.4 and 1.06 to 1.6, respectively. These deflections were caused by lower-than-expected reusable solid rocket motor performance, indicated by a low burn rate, a thrust mismatch between the left and right boosters caused by lower-than-normal thrust on the right solid rocket booster, a small built-in adjustment that favored the left solid rocket booster pitch actuator, and flight control trim characteristics unique to the performance enhancements flight profile for STS-107. The solid rocket booster burn rate is temperature-dependent, 
and behaved as predicted for the launch-day weather conditions. No two boosters burn exactly the same, and a minor thrust mismatch has been experienced on almost every space shuttle mission. The booster thrust mismatch on STS-107 was well within the design margin of the flight control system. Debris Strike Post-launch photographic analysis showed that one large piece and at least two smaller pieces of insulating foam separated from the external tank left bipod minus Y ramp area at 81.7 seconds after launch. Later analysis showed that the larger piece struck Columbia on the underside of the left wing around reinforced carbon-carbon RCC panels 5 through 9 at 81.9 seconds after launch. Further photographic analysis conducted the day after launch revealed that the large foam piece was approximately 21 to 27 inches long and 12 to 18 inches wide, tumbling at a minimum of 18 times per second and moving at a relative velocity to the shuttle stack of 625 to 840 feet per second, 416 to 573 miles per hour, at the time of impact. Arrival on Orbit Two minutes and seven seconds after launch, the solid rocket boosters separated from the external tank. They made a normal splashdown in the Atlantic Ocean and were subsequently recovered and returned to the Kennedy Space Center for inspection and refurbishment. Approximately eight and a half minutes after launch, the Space Shuttle main engines shut down normally, followed by the separation of the external tank. At 11.20 a.m., a two-minute burn of the orbital maneuvering system engines began to position Columbia in its proper orbit, inclined 39 degrees to the equator and approximately 175 miles above Earth. 2.4. On-Orbit Events By 11.39 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, one hour after launch, Columbia was in orbit and crew members entered the post-insertion timeline. The crew immediately began to configure onboard systems for their 16-day stay in space. Flight, Day 1, Thursday, January 16th. The payload bay doors were opened at 12.36 p.m., and the radiator was deployed for cooling. Crew members activated the extended-duration orbiter pallet, containing extra propellants for power and water production, and Freestar, and they began to set up the SpaceHab module. The crew then ran two experiments with the Advanced Respiratory Monitoring System stationary bicycle in SpaceHab. The crew also set up the Bioreactor Demonstration System, Space Technology and Research Students Boautis, Osteoporosis Experiment in Orbit, Closed Equilibrated Biological Aquatic System, Miniature Satellite Threat Reporting System, and Biopack, and performed low-power transceiver communication tests. Flight, Day 2, Friday, January 17th. The ozone limb sounding experiment, too, began measuring the ozone layer, while the Mediterranean-Israeli dust experiment, MEDEX, was set to measure atmospheric aerosols over the Mediterranean Sea and the Sahara Desert. 
the critical viscosity of xenon-2 experiment began studying the fluid properties of xenon. The crew activated the SpaceHab centralized experiment water loop in preparation for the combustion module 2 and vapor compression distillation flight experiment, and also activated the facility for absorption and surface tension, zeolite crystal growth, astroculture, mechanics of granular materials, combined two-phase loop experiment, European research in space and terrestrial osteoporosis, biological research in canisters, centrifuge configurations, enhanced orbiter-refrigerator-freezer operations, and microbial physiological flight experiment. Not known to Mission Control, the Columbia crew, or anyone else, between 10.30 and 11 a.m. on flight day two, an object drifted away from the orbiter. This object, which subsequent analysis suggests may have been related to the debris strike, had a departure velocity between 0.7 and 3.4 miles per hour, remained in a degraded orbit for approximately two and a half days, and re-entered the atmosphere between 8.45 and 11.45 p.m. on January 19th. This object was discovered after the accident, when Air Force Space Command reviewed its radar tracking data. See Chapter 3 for additional discussion. Flight Day 3, Saturday, January 18th. The crew conducted its first on-orbit press conference. Because of heavy cloud cover over the Middle East, MADEX objectives could not be accomplished. Crew members began an experiment to track metabolic changes in their calcium levels. The crew resolved a discrepancy in the SpaceHab video switching unit, provided body fluid samples for the physiology and biochemistry experiment, and activated the vapor compression distillation flight experiment. Flight Day 4 Sunday, January 19th. Husband, Chawla, Clark, and Ramon completed the first experiments with the Combustion Module 2 in SpaceHab, which were the laminar soot processes, water mist fire suppression, and structure of flame balls at low Lewis number. The latter studied combustion at the limits of flammability, producing the weakest flame ever to burn, each flame produced one watt of thermal power. A birthday cake candle, by comparison, produces 50 watts. Experiments on the human body's response to microgravity continued, with a focus on protein manufacturing, bone and calcium production, renal stone formation, and saliva and urine changes due to viruses. Brown captured the first-ever images of upper-atmosphere sprites and elves, which are produced by intense cloud-to-ground electromagnetic impulses radiated by heavy lightning discharges, and are associated with storms near the Earth's surface. The crew reported about a cup of water under the SpaceHab module subfloor, and significant amounts clinging to the water separator assembly and aft power distribution unit, the water was mopped up, and mission control switched power from rotary separator 1 to 2. Flight Day 5, Monday, January 20th. Mission control saw indications of an electrical short on rotary separator 2 in SpaceHab. 
the separator was powered down and isolated from the electrical bus. To reduce condensation, with both rotary separators off, the crew had to reduce the flow in one of Columbia's Freon loops to Spacehab in order to keep the water temperature above the dew point and prevent condensation from forming in the condensing heat exchanger. However, warmer water could lead to higher Spacehab cabin temperatures. Fortunately, the crew was able to keep Spacehab temperatures acceptable and avoid condensation in the heat exchanger. Flight Day 6 Tuesday, January 21st. The temperature in the Spacehab module reached 81 degrees Fahrenheit. The crew reset the temperature to acceptable limits, and Mission Control developed a contingency plan to re-establish Spacehab humidity and temperature control if further degradation occurred. The Miniature Satellite Threat Reporting System, which detects ground-based radio frequency sources, experienced minor command and telemetry problems. Flight Day 7, Wednesday, January 22nd. Both teams took a half-day off. Medex tracked thunderstorms over Central Africa and captured images of four sprites and two elves, as well as two rare images of meteoroids entering Earth's atmosphere. Payload experiments continued in Spacehab, with no further temperature complications. Flight Day 8, Thursday, January 23rd. Eleven educational events were completed using the low-power transceiver to transfer data files to and from schools in Maryland and Massachusetts. The Mechanics of Granular Materials experiment completed the sixth of nine tests. Biopack shut down, and attempts to recycle the power were unsuccessful. Ground teams began developing a repair plan. Mission Control emailed Husband and McCool that post-launch photoanalysis showed foam from the external tank had struck the orbiter's left wing during ascent. Mission Control relayed that there was no concern for RCC or tile damage, and because the phenomenon had been seen before, there was absolutely no concern for entry. Mission Control also emailed a short video clip of the debris strike, which husband forwarded to the rest of the crew. Flight Day 9, Friday, January 24th. Crew members conducted the mission's longest combustion test. Spiral moss growth experiments continued, as well as astroculture experiments that harvested samples of oils from roses and rice flowers. Experiments in the combustion chamber continued. Although the temperature in Spacehab was maintained, mission control estimated that about a half-gallon of water was unaccounted for, and began planning in-flight maintenance for the water separator assembly. Flight Day 10, Saturday, January 25th. Experiments with bone cells, prostate cancer, bacteria growth, thermal heating, and surface tension continued. Medex captured images of plumes of dust off the coasts of Nigeria, Mauritania, and Mali, Images of sprites were captured over storms in Perth, Australia. Biopack power could not be restored, so all subsequent biopack sampling was performed at ambient temperatures. Flight Day 11, Sunday, January 26th. 
Vapor compression distillation flight experiment operations were complete. Space hab temperature was allowed to drop to 73 degrees Fahrenheit. Scientists received the first live Zybion digital downlink images from MIDEX and confirmed significant dust in the Middle East. The STARS experiment hatched a fish in the aquatic habitat and a silk moth from its cocoon. Flight Day 12, Monday, January 27th. Combustion and granular materials experiments concluded. The combustion module was configured for the water mist experiment, which developed a leak. The microbial physiology flight experiment expended its final set of samples in yeast and bacteria growth. The crew made a joint observation using MIDEX and the ozone limb sounding experiment. MIDEX captured images of dust over the Atlantic Ocean for the first time. Flight Day 13, Tuesday, January 28th. The crew took another half-day off. The bioreactor experiment produced a bone and prostate cancer tumor tissue sample the size of a golf ball, the largest ever grown in space. The crew, along with ground support personnel, observed a moment of silence to honor the memory of the men and women of Apollo 1 and Challenger. MIDEX was prepared to monitor smoke trails from research aircraft and bonfires in Brazil. Water mist runs began after the leak was stopped. Flight Day 14, Wednesday, January 29th. Ramon reported a giant dust storm over the Atlantic Ocean that provided three days of MIDEX observations. Ground teams confirmed predicted weather and climate effects and found a huge smoke plume in a large cumulus cloud over the Amazon jungle. Biotube experiment ground teams reported growth rates and root curvatures in plant and flax roots different from anything seen in normal gravity on Earth. The crew received procedures from Mission Control for vacuum cleanup and taping of the water separator assembly prior to re-entry. Temperatures in two biopack culture chambers were too high for normal cell growth, so several biopack experiments were terminated. Flight Day 15, Thursday, January 30th. Final samples and readings were taken for the physiology and biochemistry team experiments. Husband, McCool, and Chawla ran landing simulations on the computer training system. Husband found no excess water in the Spacehab subfloor, but as a precaution he covered several holes in the water separator assembly. Flight Day 16, Friday, January 31st. The water mist experiment concluded, and the combustion module was closed. MIDEX made final observations of dust concentrations, sprites, and elves. Husband, McCool, and Chawla completed their second computer-based landing simulation. A flight control system checkout was performed satisfactorily, using Auxiliary Power Unit 1, with a runtime of 5 minutes 27 seconds. After the flight control system checkout, a reaction control system, hot fire, was performed, during which all thrusters were fired for at least 240 milliseconds. The Kuband antenna and the radiator on the left payload bay door were stowed. 
Flight Day 17, Saturday, February 1st. All on-board experiments were concluded and stowed, and payload doors and covers were closed. Preparations were completed for deorbit, re-entry, and landing at the Kennedy Space Center. Suit checks confirmed that proper pressure would be maintained during re-entry and landing. The payload bay doors were closed. Husband and McCool configured the onboard computers with the re-entry software and placed Columbia in the proper attitude for the deorbit burn. 2.5. Debris Strike Analysis and Requests for Imagery As is done after every launch, within two hours of the liftoff, the Intercenter Photo Working Group examined video from tracking cameras, an initial review did not reveal any unusual events. The next day, when the Intercenter Photo Working Group personnel received much higher resolution film that had been processed overnight, they noticed a debris strike at 81.9 seconds after launch. A large object from the left bipod area of the external tank struck the orbiter, apparently impacting the underside of the left wing, near RCC panels 5 through 9. The object's large size and the apparent momentum transfer concerned Intercenter Photo Working Group personnel, who were worried that Columbia had sustained damage not detectable in the limited number of views their tracking cameras captured. This concern led the Intercenter Photo Working Group chair to request, in anticipation of analysts' needs, that a high-resolution image of the orbiter on orbit be obtained by the Department of Defense. By the board's count, this would be the first of three distinct requests to image Columbia on orbit. The exact chain of events and circumstances surrounding the movement of each of these requests through shuttle program management, as well as the ultimate denial of these requests, is the topic of Chapter 6. After discovering the strike, the Intercenter Photo Working Group prepared a report with a video clip of the impact and sent it to the mission management team, the mission evaluation room, and the engineers at United Space Alliance and Boeing. In accordance with NASA guidelines, these contractor and NASA engineers began an assessment of potential impact damage to Columbia's left wing and soon formed a debris assessment team to conduct a formal review. The first formal debris assessment team meeting was held on January 21st, five days into the mission. It ended with the highest-ranking NASA engineer on the team agreeing to bring the team's request for imaging of the wing on orbit, which would provide better information on which to base their analysis, to the Johnson Space Center Engineering Management Directorate, with the expectation that the request would go forward to space shuttle program managers. Debris assessment team members subsequently learned that these managers had declined to image Columbia. Without on-orbit pictures of Columbia, the debris assessment team was restricted to using a mathematical modeling tool called Crater to assess damage, although it had not been designed with this type of impact in mind. Team members concluded over the next six days that some localized heating damage would most likely occur during re-entry, but they could not definitively state that structural damage would result. 
On January 24th, the Debris Assessment Team made a presentation of these results to the Mission Evaluation Room, whose manager gave a verbal summary, with no data, of that presentation to the Mission Management Team the same day. The Mission Management Team declared the debris strike a turnaround issue and did not pursue the request for imagery. Even after the debris assessment team's conclusion had been reported to the mission management team, engineers throughout NASA and mission control continued to exchange emails and discuss possible damage. These messages and discussions were generally sent only to people within the sender's area of expertise and level of seniority. End of section 6. Recording by Maria Casper.